I am so excited to share the final episode of Season 1 of The Ideal Cast with you. We'll be back again after the holidays with Season 2, continuing our learning journey with more great interviews. You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim, brought to you by IT Revolution. I've known of Jeffrey Frederick's work for over a decade, first through the groundbreaking work that he did with Cruise Control back in 2005, which was my first experience with Continuous Integration, or CI. Although I will admit that back then, I had only the most superficial understanding of what CI was and just how important it really is. He helped pioneer the use of CI, both through Cruise Control and as co-organizer of the Continuous Integration and Testing Conference, or KitCon. So much of this was informed by his experiences as head of engineering, head of product management, and evangelizing these important concepts. I'm delighted that I've had a chance to get to know him better because he's a co-author of the fabulous book, Agile Conversations, along with Douglas Squirrel, and within the DevOps Enterprise community. We were introduced by Elizabeth Hendrickson, who was in the second episode of this podcast. This interview is literally the byproduct of one of those serendipitous conversations that Jeffrey and I had. Jeffrey had made a couple of remarks that jolted my attention. Well, that's actually an understatement. When we were talking, literally everything he said was startling and seemed laden with meaning, which led me to asking him if we could repeat the conversation, but also record it for this podcast. For me, this is a remarkable episode because Jeffrey helped me synthesize and reflect upon some of the major themes from this entire podcast series. I've mentioned that I'm on a quest to understand why organizations behave the way they do, and it was so helpful to talk through some of our respective learnings and reflections. I found so many of his observations to be startling and incredibly insightful. He helped me connect many dots and pointed to new areas that deserve more study. In this episode, we talk more about the nature of knowledge work, which includes software, and how it requires so much more conversation or joint cognitive work, and the challenges that this presents. We talk about what bodies of knowledge are required as we push more decision-making and value creation to the edges of the organization. We revisit the concepts of integration in some very surprising contexts and why it's so much more important now than say 50 years ago. We talk about the MIT beer game, Kanban cards, and the applicability of concepts that came up in the second Mike Nygaard episode around generality and information hiding. Why are you happy and are you proud of your work are two very powerful questions and what they actually reveal about people and the work that they're performing. And why all of this is so important as we try to create organizations that maximize learning for everyone. And we talk about the work of Dr. Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolution and how it pertains to management models, past, present, and future. Jeffrey, I'm so glad you're on this episode today. So I've introduced you in my words. Can you introduce yourself in your own words? Oh, thank you, Gene. That was very nice to hear. I've been mostly working these days coaching in organizations. I've been doing executive leadership coaching for the last several years. And I've been more recently doing executive team coaching through offsites to try to work on the language that people use for each other. And uh, the phrase I really like that I came across recently from actually your podcast, Elizabeth Hendrickson described the power of reflecting and adapting to change your organizational uh, working commitments. And that's really been the focus of my work. And by the way, why do you think conversations are so important? 
The conversations, I think, become a limiting factor of a group of people to learn. And I think learning is the limiting factor for an organization to succeed, to adapt and thrive. That's where I've gotten to over time. This is not at all where I started. my, My whole career, I've been very, very interested in reducing suffering in software development through becoming better. And initially, I, I had a very strong tool focused. You, you mentioned the work on cruise control. I was super excited about that. I actually had done a startup company starting in 1999 that I can now describe to people as uh, when they say, well, what's it about? It was, it was a company called Open Avenue. It's like, well, it was like GitHub, but it was before Git. And so we, you know, we, we had the right idea. It turns out um, being early is like being wrong. But I would say actually starting a, a, a Software company in 1999, right before the dot-com crash, was really our, our downfall. But I was excited about that because I, I could see the struggles that people had in developing software. And the sort of human pain of it was always very visible to me. Uh, my first job at university had been at Borland, which was a tools company. You know, the old-time developers will know. Often I, I mention this, people are, oh, very excited, Turbo Pascal or, or, or Turbo C or, you know, Borland C++ or something, you know, often their first language or first serious language. And it was a very interesting company, but it also had a culture of a lot of times of late nights and the sort of classic problems of software development. And I just always felt that there had to be a, a better way. And I've, I have been looking for it really since, since then, from, from, from the early 90s, uh, believing there had to be a way that didn't require as much suffering. And that's what led me first into tooling and uh, both the startup that we did and then after that uh, cruise control, because I knew viscerally that fast feedback would allow people to um, avoid a lot of problems that were otherwise problematic. I, I didn't want people, uh, their success measured by the pizza box count. Uh, I wanted people <laughs> to go home and see their kids on the weekends and things like that. And and so that was that's what really drove me. It was only later, kind of the, through the 2000s, as uh, Agile was really being fleshed out by the early adopters. And I, I could just, was so excited. You know, it's so much better. And I, and I really expected it to just change everything. Uh, which which it has, but I expected much more change much faster <laughs> than happened, and I was left with this puzzle. You know what what's going on here? What, what why? You know, I had always heard the phrase that the the future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed, and and I could see that playing out from before my eyes. But but why? And uh, so that I, I followed this process from you know this this evolution from tools to processes and from processes to people. Uh, which I think is a, a classic one to really come down to, okay, it really comes down to the interactions between people are what are actually blocking improvement on the ground. In a given organization, if you're not improving, why is it? And it's going to come down to the dynamics between the people. And, and that's so interesting to me because it's so much generally under our control. People have much more ability to change their interactions with each other than they ever consider doing. It's it's just easy for people to walk in and accept the dynamics that are happening to just slot into, well, I guess, I guess these, these are the meetings we have. Why? Because they're on the calendar. <laughs> are they working? <laughs> well, who knows? But they're the ones we have. And and there's I'm I'm just excited by the possibility to do more and different and better 
Uh, anyway, this is a very long answer to what. what oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so in your book, Agile Conversation, which I think is dazzling, and one of the neatest parts of it are the citations and and notes <laughs> and the, 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 the corpus of literature that you're citing. For example, whether it's uh, Dr. Chris Aguirre's the book Crucial Conversations, Patrick Lencioni, <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Alistair Cockburn. I, I think you referenced the, the negotiation project at the Harvard Business School. Yeah, um, that's right. I had two reactions. One is, it's a very curious literature to be citing in a <laughs> book about technology leadership. <laughs> yes. uh, and yet, on the other hand, it does seem... I wouldn't say obvious, but uh, kind of in the knowledge business and <laughs> knowledge work, it it does involve more about people interactions. Can you crystallize why you think conversations are more important now than it was, say, a hundred years ago? Oh wow, that, that's interesting. I I think that the immediate answer that comes to mind is it was was actually twofold. One is I think that we tend to interact with a lot more different people, coordinating the work differently, and there's a lot more variability. Um, that need to uh, frequently adjust requires more conversation. I, I, one of the blogs I've been reading is by a historian. It's called uh, acoup.blog, and he recently talked about farming in the ancient world. And he was describing sort of how most people lived. You know, they were subsistence farmers growing wheat or rice. He mostly focused on wheat because that's his area of specialty. And he talked about the knowledge that people would develop in their local context over centuries. And the thing about that is you could expect that while there was a lot of variability from year to year, from season to season, a lot of knowledge you needed to have, it, it didn't have the same range of possible outputs of your existence, you know, <laughs> that people didn't have as many choices about mm. what they were going to do and what they were going to do together. I mean, you fundamentally, you had to go grow that food and then store it and then eat it to not die. You know, your options were kind of constrained. <laughs> and that's just not true for us um, either as individuals, but even if we come together on our teams and our projects, like what are we going to make today? Like there's a huge range of what we might work on within the same company. The same team has a lot more choices about what to work on, what the outcome is going to be, what will make this year successful than you than you had a hundred years ago. So I, I, I think that's that need for collaboration and coordination makes conversations much more an essential skill. It's interesting. And by the way, I'm thinking about the. Patrick Lencioni, that was the, the executive team. Yep. Right. So that was kind of the point of which integration happened was at the very top, right? <laughs> kind of around strategy interaction and then kind of, the, kind of got pushed down. And it, it seems like there's something about the work we do where the point of integration happens at a at a very low level. It happens everywhere. So the increase in specialization of you know knowledge. The integration happens uh, multiple times a day. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know through every interaction. Uh, does that uh, resonate with you? Absolutely. But to be words, clear, that's true. That's it happens at a much lower level when it's done well. I mean, the 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 one of the lessons of the book, right? The apex of the pyramid, the, the top dysfunction is inattention to group results. And so when the executives start focusing on the on their functional areas, you know, yeah. like, well, I don't know about those people who are marketing, but we're gonna have a great technology organization. 
or I don't know what's up with technology, but it, you know, over in finance, we're going to kill it. Like, and <laughs> when they when they don't look at the group results, they just start focusing on their areas of control. Then you have this ultimate dysfunction. When it's done well, you have alignment across the business, and and that allows what allows you to push the coordination down to a lower level, and so you can have that integration across functionally at a low level, that's success. But when you have to do that sort of go up three levels and then go horizontally over to the other executive and come back down, well, then you know what? That Those conversations aren't happening daily. You know, it's like, well, when is when is our executive going to talk to your executive? Okay, we might get an answer next week. <laughs> uh, it's just, uh, so when it's done well, we have the opportunity. And I think that's what it comes down to. We have the opportunity for more frequent consequential integration conversations at a lower level than we did before. The cost is system complexity, right? That's We are in a much more complex system that gives us a lot more flexibility for what we generate. Uh, and, and this is, but it's going to rely on those low-level integration conversations to make it happen. Gene here. I had a bit of an aha moment right here, and it was around the word integration, which is strange since I've used this word a lot in this podcast, especially with Dr. Steven Spear. The dictionary defines to integrate as combining one thing with another so that they become a whole. I've heard Steve take this even further. We want to combine things with another so that they become much greater than the sum of their parts. It's funny that upon listening to this for the third time, the word integration suddenly takes on a new meaning for me. So Jeffrey helped bring continuous integration to the masses through cruise control. Continuous integration is about creating continuous code builds, continuous integration of code commits from different teams, and continuous testing to make sure everything still worked together when you combine them. This resulted in the opposite condition of what was all too common back then and still too common even now, that integrating code from multiple teams would often take months or even years. Jeffrey mentions later in this interview that many projects didn't even make it out of integration because, quote, integration is where projects went to die. (laughs) In the famous book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, suddenly seems like a very similar concept, not about integration of code, but integration of objectives and teams. The main characters in that book is the new CEO who is attempting to understand why all her top executives didn't trust each other and exploring what was required to get them to all be working towards a common objective. In this book, there is very infrequent integration of something, of strategy, of execution, of a shared consciousness, or creation of shared goals. This resulted in very poor performance. They were losing in the marketplace. There was rampant finger pointing and a sense of lack of accountability. And conflicts within the organization had to escalate to the highest levels of the organization. That failure to integrate shared goals at the highest levels made integration at the lower levels impossible which was why it was so problematic when people had to work together from different silos. Because of the absence of shared goals, in order to make a decision, they had to escalate it all the way up to the highest levels. The notion of shared goals at the top being a prerequisite or a precondition of being able to push integration lower into the organization, I guess now seems obvious. And a corollary is that any integration that was happening in the before scenario of five dysfunctional team was only happening within each executive silo. I'm immediately reminded of how in a previous episode, Dr. Steven Spear described how the level of which integration occurs within military branches has continued to get pushed down over the last 100 years. 
And that integration in healthcare organization now has to happen between scores of different specialties. In his DevOps Enterprise Summit talk at Vegas Virtual two weeks ago, he talked about how in healthcare organization that he's worked with, because of the lack of any structure that allows integration between, say, nursing and pharmacy at the local levels, means escalating most issues all the way up to the healthcare system CEO. And as he said in his talk, the CEO has bigger problems to deal with than, say, the number of Advil tablets that should arrive at a patient's bedside. Okay, back to the podcast. When I asked Jeffrey, is there an easy answer for why is there a need for better integration at lower levels now and why is it so urgent, say, compared to even two decades ago? Oh, an, an easy answer. If I recall, wasn't this uh, Carlotta Perez that said we're at the age of information? I think that's that's kind of the answer. You have this, what we're working with, the material that we are crafting the future with is information. Uh, it's an information is a much more amorphous um, substance. And it can be molded and shaped in different ways and put to different purposes. And therefore, it leads to, to more of this sort of coordinated, uh, we need to work together to, dis- to, to distill what the meaning of this is that we're talking about. You know, it's, it's that <laughs> so fundamentally, when you're dealing with a, 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 something that doesn't exist physically, you know, <laughs> that you really have to work a lot harder to be clear on what this thing is. If I go and hold up a pen in front of the camera, you know, we're talking about tangible objects, right? We, our language can be kind of imprecise because we, we have like a, a, a unit of truth that we can, <laughs> we, we can look at, like it's, it's a thing, you know, we can touch it, right, we can you hand have it back it, and forth. I don't. <laughs> exactly. That's you right. need to send it to me, right? And uh, right, right, right. Uh, and and so we we don't need to uh, articulate as clearly and as precisely when we're dealing with physical, tangible objects. It's it's because we have the the actual thing itself. <laughs> when we're dealing with pure concepts of information, it puts a lot more uh, work on us to create the language that has the meaning to capture the relevant concepts. And we have to always be negotiating that meaning back and forth between us mm-hmm. and finding, because we have no way of directly transmitting our definition to another person, not, not the real one, right? We, we, have, we can come up with an approximation in words, but it's only an approximation. And then we work out the differences in use through interaction back and forth. We find those edges and differences of meaning uh, over time together. Uh, and so, yeah, that's this is a like this ongoing conversation of uh, to define what does this really mean? What does this really mean? I had kind of goosebumps when you said that. <laughs> so let, let me see. Let me reflect it back at you and see if it still holds. Yeah. So, kind of in the previous era, we were dealing with the manipulation of atoms of matter, and now it's about bits. You know, the information flows, and so even the construction of code is really. Uh, I love that phrase that it, you create things out of. Thought stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's yes. a, literally infinite possibilities, permutations, and being able to concretize that into things you build. I mean, that, that's what is so challenging about software. And so it is that ambiguity that forces much higher degree of something. Yes. <laughs> Communicating, <laughs> specification, conversation, right? That, that actually yes. makes it um, all those things that free us from shipping physical things around is actually what kind of creates this need for higher fidelity communication something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, we, we, when we're doing the work at, 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 in our own heads, at our own desk, yeah. you know, we describe it as knowledge work. 
Yeah. When we start doing it in teams, it becomes something a bit different. Now it's like this conversation work, you know, where, where we're <laughs> using all of our knowledge together to come up with answers that we didn't have independently. We're generating something that none of us had separately. <laughs> There's a kind of magic in that. That is amazing. Um, all right, so I'm going to probably put that in a box for now. We'll probably take it out <laughs> in a moment. So here's the, here's the first question I had prepared for you. So the first startling reaction I had is when I had described that Steven Spears story about the 60 line side store changes per day. So just uh, for context, uh, this is when he went to Japan with the mentor, Dr. Kent Bowen, with the, one of the VP manufacturing from one of the big three auto manufacturers. And the story goes, plant manager then discussed how at this particular Toyota plant, they were doing 60 line side store changes per day. And to which the VP of manufacturing for the big three automotive company said, uh, that's crap. We tried six and we ended up shutting down the whole plant <laughs> for three days, right? Yeah. In other words, it took three days uh, for them to be able to recover because parts were in the wrong place and suddenly they couldn't ship cars for three days. The kind of the aha moment for me uh, in that particular conversation with Steve Spear was that the Kanban card was the unit of synchronization and it also allowed for a decoupling of systems so that you could change things at the edges without having to have this all-knowing thing in the center, yes. uh, which actually modeled the uh, big three plant. Because when they tried to do six line-side store changes, they missed something and suddenly parts were in the wrong place. And your reaction to my utter astonishment was, uh, oh, that's I recognize that. That's information hiding. So can you please explain what did you mean by this and why do you think that's important? All right. So the, the, when you described it and we're describing that pattern, I immediately thought of an interface. Uh, and you know, well, what's, what's the point of the interface? It's to hide the information of the implementation behind it. It's, it's, it's exactly this case of, I want this to go somewhere, and I don't need to know exactly where. I'm sending a message, and I don't know exactly what they're going to do with it. I don't need to know. And it's that, uh, that ability to not need to know uh, is what in oh, oh we describe well that's information hiding there I don't need to know how the rest of the system is going to deal with this and so you describe this with the you know Kanban system like yeah you just you 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 have that interface you just redirect it to a different place the the sender didn't need to know uh, uh, where it's going and the receiver doesn't need to know <laughs> where it came from and it's and it's all going to work out you know they 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 didn't know it just <laughs> it, it, it it hit exactly that sort of um you know i've refactored to that before <laughs> so <laughs> it very much uh, resonated with me and and so why do you think that's important in the well, I don't even know how to ask the question. It just seems like a big concept, and I think it's important, but I don't know why. <laughs> so, what, as, as I was saying before we started, you know, I was listening to the interview you had with Michael Nygaard, and he was describing about the the genericity, architecting for genericity. How do you say that? Genericness. I would I would say. Yeah, right. Uh, and it talked about the same property of being able to put uh, push a context to the edge. And it was the exact same ar- argument. And in that whole explanation, he was talking about system architecture and about the advantages you get to get the flexibility that you want. You know, and he and, and for exactly the same reasons, he made the argument saying, you know, you want the local country managers to be making their local deals. You want what they accept for payment processing to be able to to change frequently all the time. And you wouldn't want that to be slowed down by needing to change a, a service, for example, that was matching up, you know, uh, the types of currency that people would take. So by, by moving that 
to the edge, you allowed more flexibility for more rapid change. And that idea of rapid change was what is what's behind the information hiding. It's you're making a trade-off in a certain direction to get something you value, which is we're, we're, we're valuing the ability to move things around to be flexible. And so I think this is why this pattern comes up again and again at completely different contexts in a sense. It, it, but it's the same motivation. It's what allows us to adapt. And how much effort do we want to put in, uh, in empowering adaptation uh, versus control? And this is because this is the trade-off. That what works against this is like, no, 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 you can't do that. There must be a central source of truth. And I think there's a mindset that says it's like to do, to have anything other than central control is anarchy. There's a great, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Lawrence, he, he had a great test, which is you could ask people and say, is it more important that your system be correct or that it be useful? <laughs> and, and there's two kinds of people in the world. And it's whether or not they could conceive of a system that's useful but not correct <laughs> versus the ones who cannot. <laughs> there are a class of people who say it cannot possibly be useful unless it's correct. And so, and this mindset, I think this is akin to the people who believe there must be a central source of truth. They're going to build in a certain type of uh, system, and whether that's a software program or a uh, enterprise architecture or whether it's your enterprise organization, how that information flows. This is like a pure sort of bureaucratic mindset. There is one right way, and therefore all the information must flow to and from that source of truth. It's going to be inherently centralized around the, the right blessed people, knowledge, system, whatever it is, because anything else uh, is not could not possibly be useful because it couldn't be correct. That the, 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 people with real world experience realize that, that you know there's value in that. There's value in having a centralized system bring everything together, but it's a trade off that you're making. So is it is it worth it in your context to have that centralization of information before you make changes, or in your context do you get benefit from moving things to the edges? And I think that's part of the job of design is to know when and where to make those those trade-offs. And then maybe to go to the question I asked you before, is there an easy answer to say why that's probably more important now than it was 20 years ago? <laughs> pushing it to the edges. <laughs> but, but the very obvious answer is the pace of change. That's the the, the, the immediate slam dunk answer. The, the, the pace of change moves what the trade-offs are. When, you're, when your systems are evolving more rapidly, when you are in a position where you need to be more competitive, where you need to respond to the market faster, it, it's really, so it's environmental. The, if the environment has become more demanding, then, then you need to be more responsive. And that, that then chain makes this trade-off move more towards one direction than the other. It moves, it moves more towards adaptability over that centralized, let's make sure we get everything exactly right and the one right way and the efficiencies that come from one right way. Because it's, mm -hmm. this is, there's, no, there's no free lunch. It, just, uh, it can just seem that way if we're getting <laughs> so many advantages. But there definitely are, are trade-offs here. So interesting. Okay, by the way, thank you so much. <laughs> this is really as good as I hoped it would be. I mean, <laughs> and enlightening <laughs> as, hope, as I hoped it would be. So here's the other thing that you 
reacted to in a kind of a, a quick way that again made me halt my tracks. We were talking about the uh, MIT beer game, mm. and when I was uh, describing it to you. Um, in terms of the way it's structured. So you have the retailer, the wholesaler, the distributor, and then the factory and uh, the very specific one-way flows of the information and the catastrophic uh, outcomes that usually uh, come out of it over, over 40 years. And you said something that startled me. You said, oh, that's obviously a totally screwed up structure, <laughs> which in many ways summarized my reaction I formed only you know after months of studying it. So it seemed evident to you that uh, there was something really, really wrong <laughs> with the way the game was structured. So what made you say that? And why do you think that realization is important to the work that we do every day? It's a good question. Again, it's sort of a pattern matching going on there. And in it, it's very cent- similar to what we're just describing, which is sort of one-way flow of information you know, from a central source of truth to the edges, as opposed to optimizing, saying, how can we get information from the edges and inform the system as rapidly as possible. Yeah. This is when we want an adaptive system. That's what we're we're saying is how can we know as soon as possible? I, I was just describing to someone in a in a coaching call. He was relatively new people manager, but an experienced technology person. And he was saying, "How do I make my system resilient? My people system?" And I said, "Well." tell me what kind of problem you're trying to solve. And he described a problem they had where uh, some people had been unhappy. And I said, great, well, that's an incident. How do you go and uh, diagnose that? If it was a technology problem, what would you do? Because he, he knows how to do a root cause analysis. He, he, he likes that incident analysis. Uh, John Osborne would hate me for using root cause, but hopefully <laughs> we, can, we know what it means. <laughs> we'll use it as shorthand for yeah. uh, you know, blameless postmortem. He actually gives my, the person I was coaching, he said postmortem. So he, he, mm. he, he likes to go in and, and I say, look, look, you have a real advantage here because you're dealing with similar components and in information flow, but you have the advantage to be able to ask the components <laughs> what's going on <laughs> in a much richer way. And if you were doing a, a, a post-mortem of a technical incident, you would look back to say, well, what could we have known at the time? You know, what, what was happening, what was known, and even what, what could have been known? What could we know in the future? How could we get information earlier to inform our decision and we make better decisions because you, you want to be sensing from the edges and using it to inform what you do sooner. And he's like, oh yeah, of course. And it, so it really came down in part like asking the people on his team, like, are you happy? <laughs> like, Because <laughs> humans are great at sort of synthesizing all the different things that are going on in the projects into like one <laughs> KPI. You know, are you happy right now? No, actually, I'm kind of annoyed. <laughs> Great, tell me about it. I, I don't know what's going to be behind that, but we're going to learn something. So you can, you know, I, so in your system design of your team, are you gathering that information from the edges, from the people and bringing it back? And the, and the beer game, it, it was clearly not capturing information from the edges. It was just, it was not designed that way. It was sort of, um, you know, we're, we're going to send these messages and hope everything works out, but there's no potential, very limited capacity for learning about what's actually going on, learning about your state and using that to adjust. So it looked to me like you were going to end up in kind of a driven oscillator. You can get these sort of chaotic rhythms from taking like a pendulum and adding a kick to it. And uh, you're going to have this sort of driven uh, oscillation system that's going to be chaotic, just from the design of it. Well, by the way, that's a heck of a surmise from very limited. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a that's a, that was an astounding conclusion <laughs> based on even just a rough description of the simulation. By the way, and I just want to credit you that's that's, that's mind blowing uh, to me. And, and by the way, you bring up something that 
I've always wondered about, right? And so in the state of DevOps research, right, the one of the organizational performance metric is employee net promoter score. Yeah. And whether you call it employee engagement, um, you know, enthusiasm for work. Yeah, you know, I've always wondered like why why is that really a marker of organizational performance? And specifically it's, you know, I think the definition we used for the Dora research was to what extent, what percentage of organizations are exceeding profitability, market share, and productivity goals. And somehow <laughs> that leads to a sense of, you know, employees being willing to recommend their organization is a great place to work to their yeah. friends and colleagues. <laughs> so I've never heard such a great definition of that measure. <laughs> are you happy? <laughs> is uh, The reason why that's important as an indicator is that that is a phenomenal synthesis of how I feel about the work I do. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, can, can you say a little more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's, and I'll really like when I, when I do one on ones with people, there's two questions I asked uh, in the, roughly going for the same thing. And the first question is, are you happy? <laughs> and the second is, are you able to do work that you're proud of? And and these things are closely related, but sometimes they, they, they can generate slightly different answers. And the reason why these work, so these are important for two reasons. The first one is just, this is a leading indicator. Like this is number one, let's just start with this. Employee happiness, the, the, uh, an employee ability to be proud of what they're doing is a leading indicator of problems on your project and problems in your organization. It will show up there before it shows up anywhere else. And uh, now, why is that? And this is the interesting part. And, there, and there's two answers. We, one, we've been saying, okay, well, because we're getting information from the edges. You know, the, the people doing the work know. And that's, but that's only part of the answer. And it's the less, it's the least important part. Much more important is the fact that they care. This is pure theory why. And for people who don't know Theory X, Theory Y, Theory X is like old school management. The idea is that you know, employees are lazy, and if they couldn't, if they can, they will steal from the company by getting paid and not doing work. And therefore, the job of a manager is to be overseeing them to make sure that they're doing work, <laughs> because otherwise they won't. And uh, and is so that's the and that's a like often our sort of caricature of what a boss is, you know, and, and what a boss does, and it's terribly, terribly wrong. It misses this fundamental insight, which is that, no, actually, theory why, people are self-motivated and they want the project they're on to succeed. They want the work they do to matter. And what makes them very unhappy is the, is the fear that it won't. The, the idea that the work I do doesn't matter is, is a terrible one. I, I remember actually reading Kent Beck's Extreme Programming Explained, the white book, way back when. <laughs> And in the epilogue, which is, I, I, the whole book was mind-blowing to me. The whole book I just absolutely loved. Uh, and I got to the epilogue, and he describes that every methodology is based on fear. And the person who designed the methodology designed it to prevent the things that they're afraid of. And what he said is, I'm afraid of doing work that doesn't matter. And I was like, oh, I totally, I totally get this. I totally get this, and that's why that was what was so powerful to me about Agile and XP at the time was we were saying, look, we we want the business to succeed. There's no, there is no tension here. There's not a. It's not like the business people versus the technical people. The technologists, we want the projects to succeed. We want the business to do well. We want our systems to matter to what comes out of this. That I think is a very human element. And once you understand that, if you, once you really grasp that, yeah, people do care, then you suddenly start interacting with them very differently. 
you 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 see them as a very different source of information. A, a traditional boss will see themselves as having more information and more knowledge about what's going on. And, oh, there's these people and it's my job. I'll hear what they have to say and I'll correct them. And he's missing the possibility that these people are informing you. <laughs> this is These people are giving you this fantastic gift about what's actually happening out there. And just from their emotional state, you'll, you'll know from the dynamics, like, is this good or bad? And, and, this, and this is a very fractal test, by the way. I was uh, doing an uh, off-site training for some people, virtual off-site, on, on Friday. And I had uh, the, the people do a discussion. Actually, they were going to choose uh, the discussion topic for the afternoon based on the training. You know, I've been giving them a training on conversational techniques. Like, right, you're going to apply it now on how to be transparent and curious. Choose your topic of conversation. It took about 15 minutes from the choose a topic from among four. And I stopped them. I said, all right. Let's reflect on the conversation you just had to choose your topic. <laughs> I want you all to write down the things you were thinking and feeling but didn't say in choosing the topic to discuss. And they did that for a couple minutes. And I said, great, I'm going to go around and each of you are going to share one thing from your list that you were thinking or feeling but didn't say. And then I said, we got that all day out. And I said, well, well that's really interesting. You're here to practice transparency, but even in the discussion of what to decide, you're not being transparent. And even, even better, the choice of the four topics you were considering you came up with that you decided on as a group was the worst possible choice of the four. <laughs> one person passionately cared about one topic, and we are not discussing that. One person definitely did not want to discuss this topic. And everyone was okay. So you chose like the worst possible score for the group because you weren't sharing what you knew, what you were thinking and feeling. And I said, now, having done that, have that conversation again. And they did spend another 10 minutes discussing the topics. They very quickly converged on one. But if you just were watching a video camera, just a, a recording, it was a different meeting. The first one was terrible. The first 10 minutes, just like, well, what do you want to discuss? Maybe, what, is anyone really excited? You know, the very, these sort of questions to the room. And, and these the things, these are all nice people. That's the problem. They're all very nice. And they didn't want to upset one another. And they so much didn't want to upset each other that they didn't share their own actual thoughts about what they cared about because they thought it would inhibit other people. And as a result, they, they had the classic group think of getting a bad outcome. And the second mm -hmm. one, they started being willing to share more, disagree more. And every time that someone brought up something that kind of was from a different angle, rather than going along with the flow, it took the conversation in a different direction. It added tremendous value, tremendous value. And you had that just in a few minutes. And the feeling in the discussion was so much better. They were laughing, they were joking. That's what you would have seen on the camera. You would have seen this completely different dynamic from people. And so they were having a lot more fun in that second conversation. They were much happier in that second conversation than they were in the first. So this idea of employee happiness, it's not just like abstract net promoter score over time. It's like right now in this meeting, in this conversation, are, are you bored? <laughs> I, I mean, if, if you're bored, if we're bored in this meeting, maybe it's the wrong meeting. And, and one of the things I told me is like, if you ever are in a meeting and you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm feeling kind of bored right now, guess what? You will not be bored any longer. You're gonna you're about to have a very interesting conversation with people. So anyway, the, this this idea of employee happiness, people care about it and they care about it every level, and it's 
always available for you to be tapping into. How is this going for you? Are you enjoying this or not? Are you bored? Are we engaged right now in this moment with the work we're doing right now? Uh, and by the way, I, I think that's amazing. And, and I'm just trying to prove to myself that I really understand why that's important. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, why is that important? So, so can you connect the dots for like when that happens, why is the second dynamic so much better than the first? I mean, can, can, can you just yeah. connect the dots so that you can make the claim this is better for the organization? Now, it's better for the information because it's simple. You're, you're generating more information. At, like at the at bottom line, that's the answer. You're bringing more information into the conversation. All these things that people were thinking but not saying, that was data. That was information that could have been gone into a decision process, but it was being withheld. Like it wasn't meeting the threshold for contribution. Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean, I'm going to just say generically, do you want to make decisions based on more information or less information? That's kind of the choice. <laughs> And does it matter I who's making decisions? I mean, is it the person at the top, the decider, right? The hippo, right? I mean, is it, yeah. uh, or is it more than that? Well, I, I like to, I like to avoid, I like to, I like to disentangle the decision making process, like, who, like who decides and how, from yeah. the information you're going to use to inform the process. Those are, those are like really, really different. I don't really care in a sense how you're going to make the decision. I mean, you can you can you can analyze that separately. It's just not where I usually find the bottleneck. The bottleneck of good decision making is not usually decision making process. It's the it's what generates the information for the decision. It's it's that we're not bringing all the information in that we could have, and and so that's the problem I'm usually helping people overcome. Because because if if people aren't speaking up, if they're not sharing what they know, if they're not sharing their thoughts and feelings, their gut feeling like they're they're oh I'm worried about this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid of what might happen. Uh, oh, actually, this really excites me. I think this will be great. Like, uh, it's not just the, the, the facts and figures. They're, they're all their people's knowledge and experience integrated into emotional state is tremendously valuable information. <laughs> and the more of that you can bring into the process that make visible, the better decision you're going to make, no matter what protocol you use to decide. That's interesting. And, and so what's coming to mind is sort of the Kahneman, Traversky kind of model of thinking fast and slow. And if I, yep. I, I'm kind of where my head is going is that kind of that feeling is really the, well, is, is it mode one or mode two? Whatever system the fast one. part is, right? The system one right? yeah. is uh, all of that gets integrated into a feeling, yep. <laughs> right? Uh, maybe informed by system two. I mean, I mean, is that to what degree do you agree with the correctness of that statement. But it's it's interesting. I think that's right that the system one is integrating a lot of information you know uh, unconsciously. That that division I really like because system one is is the part of your thinking that makes most of your decisions. <laughs> and 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 yet system two is what we think of when we think about thinking. So there's this dichotomy that that sort of rational deliberate effortful system two is relatively rare <laughs> among all the decisions yeah. you make, um, but it's it's what we think of, and we we have so we have this incorrect model of of how we make decisions, and we carry that broken model into our meetings, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we think, oh well, you know, we're only going to we're going to think it's all about this sort of effortful analysis and facts and figures, and that's yeah. really important, but it's just it's just 
partially, it's only part of the story. It's interesting. And when you ask, how are you feeling, right? Yeah. Uh, when you ask, uh, are you happy? Are you doing work that you're proud of? It seems like this is when you allow kind of system two to work. And yeah, the question really says, does system one believe it? <laughs> it does, to what degree is all that data inform, you know, really informing and uh, being reinforced by that feeling? It's like, oh, no, <laughs> it's, uh, I am proud, right? We're not there yet, but you know, we're, we're going down the right path versus, uh, you know, this is crap. Right? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I almost always people answer the question sort of yes or no instantly, effortlessly. And then there's a pause because I don't say anything. And then they start thinking, well, why is that? (laughs) It's, it's, it's a, it's a pattern I see again and again. They say, Oh, you know, my little jabroni. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I am, you know, like for example, you know, so there's that recall that, so it definitely is that, that that sort of element of they, they, they know at the tip of their tongue, the answer to these questions, but then they're not, but they don't have access to why exactly? How did I get there? <laughs> and and then it takes some effort to go to go find it. And of course, it's remember when talking about uh, thinking fast and slow. It's this is this this difference between system one and system two is the source of cognitive bias. So I think it's important to say that when when people come out and say, "Oh, I think uh, how, what do you think of this plan? Oh, I think it's crap." Like that should not be the end of the conversation. <laughs> you've, <laughs> you've gained some valuable information, but not all of it. You're on the you're on the beginning of a journey. That the, the the cognitive bias happens if you stop at that point and say, "Oh, I don't need to I don't need to discuss it any further because it's crap." And, and presumably, this is why it's so important to be able to get as much information right to inform these decisions. That creates a space for the data to help overcome all these cognitive biases. Right, <laughs> what system one is so bad at. Oh yeah, I think that's a that's a great way to put it. We all have partial information and information that's much more partial than we are aware of. And uh, getting out all the information, all the different points of view, uh, is um, is is where you have the chance to discover surprises, uh, information that you didn't know that you didn't have, and which is the most valuable information you can get. Is uh, you know I I had a belief about the world. I mean. Fundamentally, learning is the detection and correction of error. So it's when I have a model of the world and I then some facts come up that that disprove my model. I'm like, oh, there's something else going here that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. That was very valuable. Like that's, I have the opportunity to learn. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so I want to I be sure to grab that. If I don't have people bringing their information up, I don't have that opportunity. And, and then I'm limiting... This is what come back. We're limiting our ability to learn. We're limiting our ability to innovate. We're l- limiting our ability to solve problems. And you know that's that, that's how that we're we're going to be more likely to suffer. Which I I want to still yeah. avoid that suffering part. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, forgive me if I asked this already, but it seems like that too is more important now than it was twenty years ago or a hundred years ago. <laughs> is there an obvious reason that easy answer to like why that is? <laughs> I think it's to me it largely comes back to the same issue, which is that there's more change and therefore there's more at stake in a in our day to day interactions. And that I mean it may, it may not be obviously follow, but the when there's more change, then there's um, the the kind of types of errors are more novel, <laughs> and we we right. may have less opportunity for recovery, and and so that that makes it for a more competitive environment. When you have a relatively static society, relatively stable roles uh, that that you can expect, you know what tomorrow is going to be like. You can expect what next month, next year is going to be like. When there's a lot of predictability, 
then there's less need. I'm tempted to say there's less novel information, but I think that's not actually true. I actually just think it's there's less need for it. You're in a, you're in a, a much less competitive environment. And I think, I think that environmental factor is really important. One thing I've noticed in my career is the, the pace of adoption of different breakthroughs and the uneven uh, adoption of, you know, breakthrough practices and technologies and approaches. And it's, um, you could say it's, it's places that are more competitive, that are under more competitive pressure yeah. evolve faster. They have to. And that's just that's a function of evolution, right? It's not it's not a deliberate thing. It's just the ones that don't evolve rapidly, they die. And so you're left with survivorship bias gives you like, oh yeah, that industry has a lot of really advanced people. Why? Because the people not doing that are dead. <laughs> in fact, one of the findings in the state of DevOps research in 2019 was actually the first time ever. There was actually the first time there was actually a uh, a bias in the vertical, which is uh, in retail. Re- if you're in retail, you're more yeah. likely to be a high performer yes. right? because of the apocalypse, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. That's that's fantastic. I, I, this, to me, Vistra came home in the other way. Uh, in my early, sort of earliest consulting in the 2000s, I found that the, the places that, had, that seemed to have the lowest um, pace of change were insurance companies because their their business was just so profitable. They, they were going to make money no matter what. And uh, I was talking to someone whose brother worked there, and he was describing the challenge of introducing new practices. Was was how do you um, how do you get buy-in to try something new? You say, well, it'll be better. Well, better how? Well, like we'll be done sooner. Anytime you you said something would be better, you were taking on unnecessary risk because no one really cared if your project was going to take a year or eighteen months or two years. Like it really didn't matter to the profitability of the company. So if you were going to try to promote something that's better, you were saying, well, instead of taking a year, I can get it done in nine months. Now you're taking a risk. Why would you do that? <laughs> Who's going to sign off on that? Right? No, it's fine. Yeah. Let's just do it the way we know, the way that's safe. So that selection bias that happens through evolution in industries, I think it just it's much more prevalent now than it was 100 years ago. Yeah. It's also maybe another reason why it's more important now than 20 years ago or 100 years ago is that if we are pushing decision-making to the edges, the surface area of which decisions are being made, <laughs> potentially bad decisions are being made, right, is much vaster. Right? Yep. <laughs> so, yes. So the yeah. quality of decisions, arguably, it's better if that goes up, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's why I think that you have this, uh, the interesting thing then about a, a learning culture like Toyota, you know, reading high velocity edge. And you look at the effort that goes into teaching people how to see problems, right? The, 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 and, and pushing that ability out to the edge. The, the effort that goes into making sure that the decisions being made everywhere are being made with the right mindset is something that was so in- essential. It's not just, just push decisions out. Uh, it's also <laughs> making sure that people are empowered to actually do something with the ability you're giving them. And that means training them, investing in them, helping them to to have the right skills to make those decisions effectively. Hi everyone, Gene here. I want to take a moment and thank everyone who took the time to listen to The Ideal Cast and contributed to the 35,000 listens we've had since it debuted six months ago. It's been amazing for me to share with you some of the most compelling lessons I've learned from the most amazing people in the industry. I believe that these lessons are important and can be applied by technology leaders in their own organizations. 
I and everyone here at IT Revolution look forward to producing season two, bringing you even more thought-provoking discussions and lessons in the new year to continue our learning journey. Speaking of continuous learning, the latest IT Revolution DevOps Enterprise Journal made possible with the support from LaunchDarkly is now available. The DevOps Enterprise Journal features papers from some of the best thinkers and doers in our space on how they solve their most pressing problems. You can read those papers along with all the IT Revolution titles on their brand new reading app, which is now in the Apple and Google Play app stores. Create your account at myresources.itrevolution.com. So let's get to the third thing that you said that also kind of made me, you know, screech to a <laughs> uh, uh, halt. Uh, so yeah, I think I think this is the first thing I asked you. I had mentioned that the sort of going through this transition in methods of management, and that was like a Keynesian moment, referencing the book Structure of Scientific Revolution. Yep. Where anytime you go through a a revolution, whether it's Newtonian to Einsteinian, or even for that Copernican to Newtonian, uh, you know, there's a. Uh, it looks like one person sort of had the aha moment, but you know, if you zoom in, you know, there's always a oh, you know, a whole school of people. Sometimes in competition, sometimes in cooperation, but uh, one person gets the credit: Copernicus, yep. Newton, Einstein. <laughs> right? And then uh, Dr. Thomas Kuhn describes it as a sublimation moment. Suddenly. Everything sort of crystallizes. We go from gas to air, <laughs> you know, and then in the moment, right? Uh, we're we're now looking at a, a solid. And, and you had mentioned that uh, that was uh, triggered some other thoughts for you, right? In terms, can you describe what some of those aha moments were, and why did they strike you as significant? Uh, this is about the, the 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 change of management over time. I, I think recently, one of the probably the book that has kind of help shape my my thinking about that is um, the book Reengineering Organizations, mm. um, which introduced, I remember, the uh, teal organization to my vocabulary. And one of the elements of that model was that we're getting organizational breakthroughs that, and that enable new types of organizations. It doesn't mean that all the old ones go away. You know, the, the, the old model organization still there. So you have a red organization, which is the street gang, you know, wolf pack analogy, you know, leadership by the strong. That still exists when you still get the orange, which is you think of like a centralized bureaucracy, uh, Catholic church kind of model. Then you have the uh, machine paradigm that comes along after that. And then you have the uh, family model, you know, sort of green organization, much more, you know, we're we're, we're on this. And then you get to the, the most newest one was Teal. Describe sort of these different modes of uh, paradigms for, for an organization, different, different analogies you could use about how people related to one another. And this idea about uh, the different possibilities and that when you have a different model of, of humans and, and how humans can interrelate, it leads to, it, 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 it's a, such a fundamental assumption, it changes everything else in a uh, less fine-grained term, you know, I mentioned the theory X, theory Y, and theory X would be sort of the poster child for Taylorism uh, style management. When you start thinking that, oh, actually, you know, he, these people don't need to be, you know, beaten into doing work, they actually can be active contributors in the work. It just changes everything about how you structure your communication, how you structure your organization. It, everything else must change as a consequence. And uh, and to me, that's the that's the paradigm shift moment, right? That from in the Cunian sense, you you don't look at the world the same way afterwards. You're looking at them 
through different eyes. And for people on the other side of the of that paradigm shift, they can't understand the worldview. It's not accessible to them. It's, it's kind of inconceivable in, in, until you have that moment. And then once you've made it, then it's like, I, I can't believe I ever... <laughs> <laughs> how did I ever believe that other thing was right? Why could how couldn't I see it before? And and I think that was the 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 the, the uh, this idea of, of this um, transition of how we manage ourselves, the way we manage organizations, the way we treat people as increasingly active components of the system, uh, as opposed to you know pieces cogs to be moved around. <laughs> Right, oh. and then compelled into doing their part. Yes, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I mean, the act of the, in in the. It was interesting because uh, Taylor was an industrial engineer by by training, and so he's the kind of person. That he, so naturally, he saw like the that engineering model. The organization is machine, and the person who's designing it and needs to be diagnosing it. The job of a manager is to be managing all the parts to make sure that none of them are faulty, and if they are, to replace them. These are, you know, essentially interchangeable parts that is being diagnosed by the by the engineer that's just that's that's not how people would hopefully most people don't you know, some still do see people that way they still see their resources <laughs> in the organization you know can we get three more resources on this project as fungible parts now if you the model we're describing sees people as a source um not as interchangeable but a source of, of unique value that they bring different strengths and weaknesses and their interactions between them are, are going to matter uh in a different way they're going to generate value be, that the designer could not have foreseen I, th I think it was in kuhn's book he talks about i think what we spear would call the dominant architecture right whatever mm -hmm. before the kuhnsian moment there was a dominant belief system Yep. And uh, I think he made that comment that often you have to wait for them to die <laughs> before yes. the, the new way, right? Uh, which I think is kind of a, a depressing claim. As we talk about a new way of working, I mean, is that sort of a preordained conclusion? Is that the only way that can bring this new way of working into being is by waiting for certain people to retire or die? I think there's an element to which that's true. I, I relate it to the book Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, and he brings up the technology adoption life cycle. Right? He, he introduced the chasm in an existing model. The, the technology adoption option life cycle existed before him. And I think about that technology adoption life cycle in evolutionary psychology terms. Like if you're a tribe, you want people... <laughs> in all of these things. You want some people to be laggards. You want some people who will stick to the old ways and never let them go be because it gives you more resilience in the population. So, uh, in, a, in a sense, the answer, I mean, yes, the, there will be organizations, there will be individuals who will never adopt the new paradigm, and we should be thankful <laughs> because, uh, because they're holding on to uh, a past solution. What, what what they're holding on to is uh, you know cultural legacy. That, that what they're holding on to was was a solution to a problem that we had had previously not had. It, we had to invent that solution, and it, they're essentially the last guardian of that. And <laughs> it's it's not bad that you know they're 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 performing service. It may not be applicable in this case. We may not you know need that solution in the future, but we don't know. <laughs> I mean, this, it's really hard to predict things, especially about the future. And uh, and so they're they're actually, I'd say in a population sense, they're performing a service. Now in the moment in my company, that's a real problem <laughs> like <laughs> to stop and allow us to move ahead. But I, I, I so I feel kind of uh, conflicted on this point. So uh, 
about those individuals. Um, I understand like that it's valuable for the population to have them, but they can be an impediment for me as someone who's you know on the other side of the technology adoption curve. I'm I'm very much in the like I I just mean new because it's better, uh, and that's enough right. motivation for me. <laughs> um, so here's something that Steve Spear told me the other day. I thought it was like equally kind of startling. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm, it, "It's so novel. I might not be able to." repeat it, get right the first time. But uh, he said, essentially, for decades, when you get hired into a role, right, your job is to you know fulfill the obligation and responsibility of that role, and it doesn't change. Yeah. Where he said at the Toyota production system, it was never really ever said that you are going into a static system. In fact, the higher you <laughs> rise in leadership, the more expected it was that your job was to change the system. Yes. And I thought that was a... I thought that was a, just a stunning. I mean, I've never heard that before, and it was such a, a stunningly large thought, right? That the you know your job is to uh, inject change into the system uh, as part of your daily work. Uh, can you react to that? Yeah, I, well, the, the 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 thought that immediately comes to mind because you mentioned in in agile conversations we talk about uh, Chris Argyris, and mm-hmm. we're talking in in the book largely about um, what he did with conversationals, but it was in pursuit of a learning organization. And he introduced something else uh, that people so uh, will we'll, might have heard of before, which is single loop versus double loop learning. And uh, single loop learning is the kind of learning that you do to get better at the the job you're currently doing. And double loop learning is when kind of you take a step back and you you rethink the strategies you're currently considering. So it's a it's a it's a meta sort of learning. It's a it's a higher order of learning. And so it's not like mm, should should we keep you know, doing this uh, the same way, or can we tweak it slightly? It's like, well, why are we doing this at all? You know, it's, 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 it's the kind of thing that says, you know, maybe we should change industries. You know, we ever considered <laughs> maybe there's a maybe there's a whole different possibility here. And I think that that idea that as you when you have an, an organization that wants to be resilient, that wants to be adapting, that wants to be learning over time. What are you saying? You know, you 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 have to have that ability to change at, at higher and higher levels, at bigger and bigger changes. If if the job of the people in the top is to keep the big picture the same, well, I mean, you're <laughs> then well, you're kind of limiting the life of your company. You're limiting the scope of changes you can actually make. So, in a sense, if you want to be long term successful, long term profitable, long term innovative. Then it has to be the the role of the leadership of the company to be thinking about the biggest possible changes, and and to be an ally of change, not an inhibitor of change. There's some examples in politics where certain leaders can't have the same thought twice, <laughs> or at least a you know, very difficult ability to you know execute on anything. So certainly part of the job of leadership, you know, is some level of constancy and consistency. How, how do you reconcile that with that statement, you know, that's a very big statement. Like they have to, at the highest level of leadership, you have to be open to the largest possible changes. Right. Well, I think it's a, one of those cases where you can use the same word to mean very different things. <laughs> Sometimes people will use leadership as a noun. You know, the people who are in charge of the company, and then you have you know leadership, the verb, which is the thing that you're doing, and it, it, it's very easy to conflate the two, <laughs> and they're not the same. I think you, even when you're describing the leadership that is changing day to day, I think this can come to one of one of the questions that people have had and complaints about American 
companies have been under the shareholder primacy doctrine that the, the, the job of a corporation was to return profits to shareholders led to incredible short-termism. And some people would say that actually it's impossible to have a long-term innovative public company in the U.S. because the demands of the shareholders to seek short-term returns will prevent long-term resilience, long-term innovation. And, and, and so I think there's something that is looking at what's the scope of time frame that you're thinking about? What's the time frame of organization timescales that we care about? And at uh, the, the level of the highest level of leadership should be about organizational design. And you should be talking about, you know, across decades, in, in, in my mind. I mean, it, it's not to say you ignore the problems of day-to-day, but in a sense, everyone is worried about the day-to-day problems. <laughs> they, don't have, they don't have the space to think about the longer-term arc and to say, do we have the right culture that's going to sustain us for a long time? What do we need to inject in this culture, right? What, what are the values that we have or are missing? You know, what's the spirit we want our company to have? Those are, those are big picture concerns that will matter tremendously for the long-term survivability and uh, relevance of a company. If you're, if you're thinking about, are, are we going to hit the quarterly numbers? You know, do you, you might not have space for that. <laughs> so, right, right. Nor the authority. <laughs> nor the authority, exactly. <laughs> so, so, which is why I think that you, when you look at places where there has been uh, uh, real innovation and you kind of say, well, let's look at who, who has control and why mm. and over what time periods and uh, what allows them to take longer term views or what compels them to have shorter term views. And I think you find, um, I've, I've, I've not done a literature research on this, uh, mm. but I think uh, that would be something very interesting to look to. And I would expect that in places where people are more responsive to, to the uh, stock market, you have a will have a long term destruction of value or a you know stagnation. And places where you have people who are able to take a longer term, then you will have a better longer term outcomes. Yeah. But that comes to the idea of like, what's the scope of leadership? What are they allowed? What do they give themselves as their brief to think about? And if they think about long term versus either short term move from one thing to the next, or our our job is to only preserve the good things have been handed down from the past. Yeah, that's the other right. problem. You can just say, well, you know, uh, my my great grandfather founded this company, and you know, it's we've run it by the same principles for eighty years, and you know, we're going to continue those principles in the future, no matter what. Like that's not right. a recipe for success either. <laughs> you may be taking the long term view, but you're you're using the wrong recipe. I want to bring up a topic that we were talking about before we started recording, and that was around structure and dynamics. I think the goal is to create these very parsimonious concepts, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? which yes. are two, structure and dynamics, right, with the maybe additional one of dominant architectures, and to be able to, I mean, I love that, the parsimonious principle, to explain the most amount of observable phenomena with the fewest number of principles, reveal surprising insights and confirm deeply held intuitions. And you said something that I think the term you used was, uh, was it teasing apart or uh, being able to put certain terms into buckets was actually useful to you. Could, could you just talk about that in terms sure. of? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was describing what I've been really enjoying about uh, the ideal cast and going through and listening to these episodes because it's uh, dealing with an area that I care a huge amount about, which is sort of the system design at different levels. And, it was interesting for me that the uh, I kind of got my head around the idea of, of of structure and dynamics. That structure is the things that you do, and dynamics are what you 
emerge, what you get. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that was really helpful for me. And then within that, then the structure, then we can sort of tease it apart to the different elements. And one of the valuable tests for me was to look at principles that could map from uh, across different kinds of systems. So we have an organizational system and we might map it into an architectural system. And that tells me that we're uh, on the road of some sort of fundamental insight, um, some sort of uh, a more generic principle that uh, that has some kernel of truth, some atom, there's some, some very important atom of truth in that. And uh, so, you know, describing the example uh, we mentioned earlier of the Kanban card as information hiding and relating that physical card to the Michael Neger uh, discussion of um, something that is, uh, you know, uh, um, if you just put all, all the data you need <laughs> in the transaction, mm. you can, you, you know, you can you can now vary it tremendously. Like, oh, so I can get similar principles from my distributed, you know, payment rules <laughs> <laughs> and my uh, car production line. Yeah. You know, that there's sim- similar, uh, similar um, information principles at play. And, and this idea that it's, it's they're both governed by the flow of information, and, and which you think in the information age that might be important. That understanding <laughs> what we can do to change the flow of information, and how when we change the flow of information, we get different dynamics. That seems like a really important area of inquiry in the information <laughs> age, right? We're, I mean, we're kind of talking about like the physics of the information age. Like we should understand this, I think. Hey, could you just say a little bit more about that? I mean, I, again, had sort of goosebumps as, as <laughs> and I mean, yes, it is very pithy and funny, but also profound. I mean, what do you think is not, if you were to articulate, what is it that is not well understood yet? And <laughs> that maybe we're kind of on the peripheries of understanding <sighs> better. What? <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> well, I, I, I would put it this way. We're, we're learning how to see you know, so yeah. we're we're in the position uh, at the dawn of the age of microscopy, you know, where we have the first illustrations of uh, microscopic creatures. Uh, we're we're just we're still developing the tools to uh, see the invisible, to to see information and understand it, and see the flows of information and understand it, and to see the effect. I mean, especially as it's mediated by uh, the human brain, which is uh, uh, both a, a tremendous uh, organ for synthesizing information and hiding it, <laughs> and I mean that in 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 bo- in all facets, both the good and the bad. Uh, and so we have this. We have are very good at learning when we have feedback on what we do, when we can take an action and see the results. We are not good at learning in situations where we don't get feedback. We, it's very difficult to develop skill if you don't get feedback. I, I could go further and say it's impossible to develop skill if you can't see the feedback. Um, I, I think the uh, uh, Wordly mapping uh, talk that Simon Wordly does, and he describes trying to play chess with and without having a board is a good analogy. <laughs> right? If if all you have is the stream of moves and you've never seen a chessboard before, you might uh, eventually learn some way to play chess after a fashion, but you will get crushed by anyone who has a board to see. And, and 
what he captures in that analogy is the value of learning to see information in a useful way. And, and I just think in these sort of system level properties, we're still not good about being able to see and understand and characterize information flows. Now, one of the things I, I really liked in Accelerate was that introduced me to uh, to the idea of the different cultures of being, you know, psychopathic or bureaucratic or generative, uh, yeah. and and they were categorized on the on the function of information flow. It was the flow of information that would allow you to tell what kind of organization you were in. That characterization on how information flows was a key insight. Because, of course, information flow is going to affect all this other stuff we're talking about, your ability to learn, your ability to execute, your ability to innovate. But this, these are all things about, you know, knowledge work in the information age, bringing experience and information together to get a result. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> this is such a stunning conversation. By, by the way, I've, I've loved the Western organizational typology model. I've never really thought about it. <laughs> as an information flow categorization, but now that you say it, it it's obvious. And, and but let me tell you something that has also stunned me. I, 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 and I say this just because I suspect that you'll have a, just a profound observation that will <laughs> also blow me away. I'm, I'm rereading a book called Command and War by Martin Van Creville. This is like the third time I've read this book in 25 years. And it's such a dazzling book for me. And essentially, uh, he's kind of, says in the history of warfare, there's always been, there's like four basic phases. You have the Stone Age of Command, where uh, everything before Napoleon, he would categorize the same way. <laughs> in general, permanent formations were less than 4,000 people because that was uh, the most you could control visually. Mm. The term detachment really meant detach and never come back. You could fork, but never join, because <laughs> once you do, once you fork, you'll never see them again until the end of the war, right? Because you right. Know, if you're more than four miles apart, you'll know, you can't even find each other, let alone right. send messages, right? So that means you, you, <laughs> you fork, and you basically have lost control of, of them. At the speed of information flow was, you know, you know, rumor could travel maybe 200 miles in a day, but reliable communication was basically at the speed of, you know, horseback. It could go higher, but it required a lot of fixed infrastructure, um, like you know, stable roads, you know, century, you know, uh, like permanent posts. So yeah. that meant that information can only travel quickly behind the lines, never on the lines or ahead of the lines. Yes. Right? So it meant that. So which led to the second uh, age of Napoleon. He would make the claim: the majority of an army, a fielded army's existence, was basically surviving. It was logistical. In fact, the most, yep. the only time you would split a force is primarily. To keep them fed, <laughs> yes, um, you needed high population densities. Yep, and so it was actually Napoleon who kind of recognized that you know density, population densities had gotten high enough where we could actually have larger forces in the field. He was a phenomenal micromanager, like you know, <laughs> like <laughs> prodigious. And for the first time, you know, he fielded, I think, three hundred thousand you know troops in the field, right, which was you know never yep. seen. So orders of magnitude larger than ever seen before, and. Uh, he created the command staff, where it was essentially the first time he had senior positions reporting directly to him to help ease with the kind of communication problem. Mm -hmm. The next phase was, you know, the mission command in the World War II by the German army, yep. kind of representing what he would view as the pinnacle of decentralized command. And then he had this other example of the Vietnam War, uh, the U.S. forces, where it was a combination of a couple things. One is it was the first time where communication equipment got field was cheap enough so it could be fielded to yep. you know much lower levels in the organization. 
which led to communication security risk. So you had to put encryption in the field, <laughs> which meant that they were always saturated. So you had flash traffic, which you know basically said it was important enough to be encrypted, which was always saturated. So it created super flash traffic, <laughs> which is for really, really important messages. But then you ended up with this phenomenon where any mistake, you know, in the uh, on the battlefield could be on the evening news. You had this position where a captain on a hill uh, would be micromanaged by a major orbiting in a helicopter, being micromanaged by a colonel <laughs> in a helicopter above them, uh, being micromanaged by a general in an orbiting 707 with uh, the Joint Chiefs on the satellite phone <laughs> in the Pentagon, yes. essentially depriving autonomy at a rate that was unprecedented. This, too, is an information problem. Um, In fact, I mean, it was actually (laughs) called an information problem. And so just like the Toyota bringing that cost change is an information problem. It seems like this this too seems profound and important to me. Could you react to that? (laughs) <laughs> the the, the uh, so that's really interesting to hear that um, recapitulation history, and I I'd heard that uh, some version of that up until, but not including the the Vietnam War part. But I am aware of that sort of phenomenon of people on the ground being, you know, micromanaged from the White House, and that with terrible results. Like it's just it's awful. It, what's funny is because it's you could understand it's an understandable mistake because whereas before you had a a um, trade-off between sort of centralized communication and local decision-making. And, you know, you, you mentioned the German model, which we, we actually um, talk about it a, a little bit in Agile Communications. We, we, we took a bit on briefing and back-briefing. The name of the book, we got it from Escapes Me. But it was from that uh, German-Prussian uh, military system. And we, we go a little bit further back to von Molke in, in there. Right. And but what you had there was uh, the idea of um, mission intent being sent out in the knowledge that people were going to have to act independently, that there was no way to to have information flow back and forth centrally. So when you suddenly get the technical breakthrough that allows the information flow to be richer, <laughs> it's the natural mistake is to say, well, great, let's bring all of that back. And you know what? We can take the communication pattern we had before, the dominant architecture, and we're going to ramp it up with the new technology. We're going to supercharge it. And it, oh, oh, that doesn't work. You know, it turns out that, that breaks in different ways. Uh, the, the, so, so I can see that why that would happen. And it, I, uh, it made me remember of a, a, a book, an article that I read many years ago called How I Learned to Let My Workers Lead. Uh, which mm. is one of the first books, uh, articles I read about self-organized uh, and self-organization within companies. And this is from Johnsonville Sausage Company, I think something oh, like Johnson that. Johnsonville Sausage, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, right. Which turned into a book. Um, yes, yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> so and when I read that, one of the things that always struck me when he talked about the transformation of the company from traditionally managed to self-organized was they needed to invert the flow of information they have what you have to do is you have to take this innovation to have all this connection but rather than using it to pull all the information from the edges to the center you need to push it from the center to the edges like that was the opposite he's like we had to invest a lot in how we pushed all of the information about the company finances and management out to be visible to the workers so that they could make informed decisions it turned out that there had been information hiding again. <laughs> like the the management 
had information that wasn't shared widely. Now, in part, you could say, well, because they previously didn't really have a technology in, say, the 40s to go and have everyone know, like, what the current bank balance was and they, what was today's sales. I mean, management didn't know it. Like, you, so there's no way that people on the workers on the line could know today's sales because no one knew it. As the information, and by the time that you did get information, it wasn't relevant to the work the workers were doing. When you start having information coming back to the edges, it turns out the best thing from the edges center is the best thing you can do with it is put it back out to the edges again. Because the fact that you can go and know that there was a sale of those sausages, <laughs> you know, <laughs> over in that store over there, like the beer game, right? Think of the beer game. <laughs> if, if you could have the people on the line know how many cases of beer were ordered today, <laughs> that might be really relevant. <laughs> right. So that that's uh, if, if you if you had the, the Vietnam staff, you know, devising this, you would have had, you know, the, the, the helicopters getting information from the stores and they would be sending information right. back <laughs> out to the stores again. They'd be telling <laughs> they'd be telling people about, you know, where to move the displays around, but not taking it to the people who are actually in the beer factory making the beer. They had the information flowing the wrong way. They were using the information innovation and availability of, of information flow. The, the cheaper information flow and and solving the wrong problem. And so if I hear you correctly, th this is a relevant lesson to what we're yes, talking about. Absolutely. So the, so the old <laughs> model was about how do we build situational awareness for the center? Right? How, how, does, how does Napoleon get yeah. information about what's going on with all of his troops everywhere so that he can micromanage them and decide? Yes. The, the, the breakthrough post-Napoleon and in the Prussian army is about um, mission command and you're going to pull information from the edges to inform strategy. You're going to push the strategic decision down to people so they can implement it. And, and they're going to be making, but there's still information scarcity. The expectation is that the people on the edges are working with local information, right? They're optimizing they're doing this, this work locally with information that they have that no one else has. What we now have the ability to do is to not only enable those people with information that they have locally, but the information globally. They can now have situa situational awareness of a much broader scale. Of course, what we first did in this, the Vietnam War problem was to try to say, let's get all the information to the center. But now we're saying, actually, right. how can the information know? And, and of course, in the series of podcasts, you have brought this up. The solution to this, right? That was Team of Teams, the Stanley and Crystal book. What were they doing there was about bringing information in and pushing it back out. They were making it so that people were able to, the information was able to flow to who need it, and you were able to dynamically get the coordination they needed at the edges, right, without it having to go through the White House. <laughs> Yeah, this is amazing. By the way, uh, he's presenting again in Vegas, as he did in London, this time with Jessica Reif, who comes from the software space. And it is so amazing. In fact, that it's actually a specific term I asked him to uh, talk about, which is, he said, imagine the feeling when you are, you know, you have the autonomy you need, you can run and shoot where you go, because the mission has been architected in a way where you don't have a lot of dependencies, right? You, yeah. All the dependencies are known, right? You know, if you go in this direction, you would find don't go there, right? Because now you have uh, interdependencies. Yes. But he said, uh, there's this phenomenon that happens when, and he, I love that he has a phrase for this, when your deci the decision space gets pulled up, meaning like someone above you is you know, taking yeah. that decision space away from you. Yes. <laughs> right? And how frustrating that can be 
right? Um, you know, especially when it's grounded in the conviction that you actually have better data locally. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. And actually give the great example of like the, the White House Situation Room during the Osama bin Laden raid of where it's a bunch of anxious faces and it is a one-way communication. You know, they are yeah. observing. <laughs> it's not reaching down, you know, 12 layers of management to, to tell someone what to do. I just right. thought that was uh, so interesting. Last question. By the well, way, I got to tell you, this, this is so fun. <laughs> When, when you have it pulled up to the wrong level in software, what do we call that? A feature factory. Like, at least that's one. That is one complaint. That's one type. There's mul there's many ways to to repeat that problem. But when I hear people complain about a feature factory, what they're complaining about is that the decision space has been pulled up <laughs> to the wrong level. <laughs> Actually, give me other examples of what when that happens. So in fact, we, one is in the unicorn project, right? Decisions have to go, you know, get the levels of authority needed to approve a decision get pulled up, right? That's yes. another example. Right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, that, that, you know, we're going to solve these. We're worried, so we're going to solve this by increased control, right? That, I mean, that's that's the if you just you could kind of that's the, the driving characteristics. You look at that is that yeah. um, because we sense risk, we're going to try to centralize the control of what happens. That will have a tendency to pull the decisions up to too high of a level. Because you're saying, well, we're going to have a higher level review, and it's not long until that review becomes direction. <laughs> and just, just from a logical rigor perspective, I also want to observe that, you know, like during high consequence situations, like, you know, high outage cost outage, Right, that's actually uh, an appropriate place for certain types of you know rigidity to come in. Right, it's like okay, no, no one touch anything. Right, we need to yeah. isolate you know um, action so that you know we can better sense make the world around us. Right, I yeah. mean, so you know there are situations where it does lead to chaos. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. and and it, we can get into like what are the what are the things that cause that chaos, like uh, unexpected interdependencies, lack partial information, right. <laughs> right? That's <laughs> absolutely, and and so you're and so you're going to bandaid over your your problems of information flow by slowing down action because you don't want people acting faster than information can flow. Oh, ooh. <laughs> that's excellent. Okay, the last thing I wanted to get your thought on was this kind of two by two matrix that I've been putting together with uh, Steve Spear, and I just thought this was interesting, right? Because the the, the original goal was to kind of tease apart a paper. That Dr. Amy Edmondson and Dr. Michael Roberto, you know, they're comparing the uh, culture between the Apollo space program and uh, the space shuttle program. Mm, yes, and you know, their their words were experimental culture, like on the frontier, everything we know that we don't know enough. So that kind of characterized the space program in the 1960s, leading to the Apollo program. And then uh, they characterized the space shuttle program as a standardized culture, where there was an operating tempo that you know, we had to provide low cost to space. So what kind of resulted in, in this was uh, this matrix. I think that the tool here is to be able to say, was to be able to create a theory of why high performance exists, whether it's the things we discussed, Apollo space program, Toyota production system, Naval Reactor Corps, uh, Alcoa, and be able to explain why there's a causal theory that explains you know high performance and then also to be able to prove the contrapositive in the absence of these constructs you know high performance cannot exist so in in the graph it's it's on the x axis is the degree of which work is standardized uh, meaning you know we write down what we do we do what we wrote <laughs> and and then the second one is the degree of which we are integrating feedback into our standardized work yeah um, and, and so I had touched on this in the Nygaard 
uh, podcast. Can I get your reaction on that? Yeah, I, I, I really like that. I, I was also struck by that in part because I remember the question of saying, looking at the principles from Rickover, <laughs> and like they seem really anti agile in some way. And how, how could, you know, so these are two good things, but from seemingly a very different point of view. It's funny because in standardization, you meant you, you, one thing you said was, what's written down and we do what's written down and i think that's a that's actually a, a, a trap but i think here that standardization is is really important and the integration of feedback so i like these axes here you know that we need to have integrated feedback and we need standardization that doesn't mean written down and because the thought that came to mind there was my early xp teams that i worked on were the, some of the most disciplined teams i've ever worked on where we had very clearly made oral contracts of how we were going to work. And we were keeping each other to that daily. And and I remember in when this was still new to us, and we were still, in this sense, maybe we were a bit experimental. We were learning our way through XP. And I remember sitting with a, a pair, we were relatively new pairing, and we're talking about yeah. what we should do next. And he said, if we were brave, and I'm not saying we should do this, but if we were brave, <laughs> what we would do is we'd write a test next. Because that's what we said we were going to do, and I was like, "You're you're right. Let's let's do that." And so we had a we were doing things experimentally, it, following the standards that we had set. We had made a contract with the group that that we were trying this out. We were trying extreme programming, and to try it meant we were going to do the practices, not because they were right, but because that's what we were doing. And, and I'll just say this has been. Uh, an aha, uh, this discipline of following the form is something that has come back to me again and again over the years. And most recently, most recently on this uh, work around uh, conversations, where I will run a conversational dojo. And we'll say, look, this is what we're practicing today. I'm not saying it's right, but this is the form. So we're all mm-hmm. going to try to put our conversation in this form and we'll see what we learn. And it takes real discipline to do that. I think that's the value of this centered work, is that it takes real commitment. It's not natural to follow a center practice. Uh, uh, Alistair Coburn, who you mentioned uh, in passing earlier, he had a one of the most influential papers on me was his paper about characterizing humans as nonlinear first-order components of software development. <laughs> Very humanistic yeah. style. It, it, it doesn't sound like it, but it, it says, yeah, people matter. And, and what he said was, because people matter so much, we should look at their uh, attributes. We should understand the attributes of, pe- of people. And one of the key attributes of people is that they are not good at behaving consistently. They do not <laughs> act consistently over space and time. We should not expect that of them. What you're describing here in the upper right is high discipline systems where people have made a very strong effort to ensure consistency. They're trying to remove one area of uh, error, uh, accidental error, which is accidental variation. And mm-hmm. they're saying, so let's let's try to remove that through 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 discipline and whether it's an oral contract with very, you know, with a pair checking, <laughs> that you're giving mm-hmm. each other courage to follow the process, or whether <laughs> it's, you know, being very rigorous about following the standard process, you're saying let's limit that sort of uh, variation so that we can have pure learning for what actually happens. We we don't want the outcomes, you know, in Deming terms, we want the system under statistical control <laughs> so that we can improve it. You you can't improve a system that's not under statistical control. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think of when I look at this on the, on on the upper right with that high 
standardized work and high degree of feedback. And, and by the way, you probably could hear sort of the, the hedging I was doing and just maybe even the discomfort of like just trying to reconcile, but it doesn't sound very DevOpsy. Yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Intuitively, right? I, I know it has to be true. <laughs> right. And in fact, if you come, then I think the, if I heard you right, right, the trap is writing things down or the trap is calling them rules. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of words that immediately take us down, like, no, this doesn't apply to you, our work. You get the I, form. The problem is people get caught up on the form. And, and lose the essence, right? And, and so they say, well, for example, this is the problem of CMMI level five, you know? Well, because we wrote it down, we have a good process, you know? <laughs> or, or even to say, it's, it's standardized because we wrote it down, right? And it's, that, that's, that, that doesn't follow this. That's not, that's not, that's not how logic works. People, people uh, it's, it's easy to substitute, you know, this is, this is goal displacement. Right, you you have an ultimate goal, and you have an <laughs> intermediate goal that's on the step towards that goal. So it's like we want to be standardized, where we're always doing the same thing everywhere, so that anywhere there's innovation, we can uh, spread that learning everywhere. So we want that standardization for that reason. Along the path to that, or actually, I'm going to go further. What we want is the learning. We what we want is the learning, and to capture and spread the learning everywhere as quickly as possible. How are we going to do that? Standardized work. How are we going to do that? We're going to write it down, right? So we have this this multi step process, but it's and it's so easy to, to lose sight of the ultimate goal was learning, <laughs> and instead think it's about the documents, right? Yeah. And and this is why you get people doing checkbox OKRs, for example, or checkbox anything. It's like oh, you know, this is the bureaucratic mindset. We've been told this is the form. Can we check? Yep, we've done the box. You know, we've we set the OKRs. Yes, we've scored them. We're done now because they're not focused on learning, which was the real goal. Yeah, I'm looking at this matrix and I'm trying to concretize the information flow problem. I mean, it has clearly has to do something with information, right? Yep. Where is the information flows in standardized work and degree of integration and feedback into standardized work? Where, where, what are the information flows? Okay, so 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 there's I think there's two elements here. So when you talk about degree of standardized work, I would say the the first thing that you're doing is you're you're improving signal quality. You know, because you're, you're taking out noise, you're taking out random variation. You're removing randomness, so that it, without with, you know, with with low signal quality, it's just hard to learn. You just you can't make sense of the information. So that's you're improving the quality of information as you improve the standardization of work, right? And then you have the degree of integration of feedback, which is saying, well, how are we how are we getting feedback? Like this this is signal, and the other one is, are we using the signal? <laughs> like that's. <laughs> You, you you have to do both. It's not enough to generate the information. This is like, how many times have people gone to an outage and you look back and say, well, what was going on in the systems? Oh, yeah, look, we have a metric that would told us exactly what was happening, but no one was looking at it. Or <laughs> we had an alert set and the alert was going off, but no one was monitoring it. We, you know, the, the information was there, but the system wasn't set up to use it. That's that's the left hand side, the degree of integration of feedback. Yeah. Are, you know, there's a, there's two elements. Is our system generating information? Mm-hmm. One and two. Are we using the information? Uh-huh. And, and that second one is a lot harder. It is it is much harder because it works against our habits. Our human nature is to not learn. Our our human nature is to find habits and routines and things that are good enough. And it's very hard to be that sort of disciplined, rigorous product to say, like, to use the phrase from the, the, 
about the podcast, you know, to work out all the funnies, you know, like on the Apollo missions. Mm -hmm. That's not human nature. And contrast that with the space shuttle, right? The foam is coming off. Well, that's (laughs) a surprise. Seem to work okay. (laughs) Carry on, right? How how do we know it's okay to fly when when there's foam coming off? Because we've done it before. Right. That's that. That's that's that is more human. I think that's that's the the thing that the not really driving to learn uh, uh, for things that are not obvious is 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 kind of yeah. not a normal human behavior. Yeah, yeah it's definitely system two. Yeah. <laughs> system, you know, we have to absolutely bring system two and, to and, the foreground. And the, and the important part about that is that you know I always say this: system one and system two, in theory, make a great pair, right? System one gives your instinctual reaction, and system two is there to back it up. I said, but the problem is that system one is biased, and system two is lazy. And this is what people forget <laughs> about reading that: is that you're evolved to not use system two. Everything about the design of your brain is to use system two as little as possible. <laughs> it's not comfortable to multiply three, you know, three digit numbers in your head. You can do it, but you don't do it for fun because it's work yeah. and you're evolved to not do it. So <laughs> this is what we're asking people in the upper right hand quadrant to live in that system two land all the time. And it takes a lot of structure. It takes a lot of structure to support people to get them in a space where they can live in system two, where you can have the dynamic of living in system two all the time. Wow. <laughs> this is so great. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you one question that will seem so tactical. One thing that occurred to me as you were talking, we were talking about Kent Beck's amazing book, Extreme Programming, and one of the most provocative, startling preposterous notions he has is pair programming. <laughs> it just seemed preposterous, <laughs> right? Like absurd. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe people tossed out, you know, his notion of agile just because of it, right? Because yep. it seemed so contrary yeah. to common wisdom. I mean, and so when you talk about the intangibility of thought stuff, yes. right? And uh, you know, pair programming is exactly what came into my mind, right? In terms of like just how counterintuitive is it? That just having two people work on one problem, you know, arguably leads to better outcomes than two people working separately on, on their own. Yeah. What other sort of insights or revelations came through kind of the Kent Beckin notion of pair programming? That whole extreme programming explained and it really distilled a, a lot of ferment that had been happening in that space. I I was fortunate enough to be on Ward's wiki, the the C2.com wiki mm. in the late 90s. I think I was first there in something like uh, I want to uh, say 98 or 99, something like that, where you would have people like Kent and Alistair and others and Ward Cunningham and Ron Jefferson, like talking about these ideas. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? What do you think about this? And and it was really people wrestling with something very similar to what we're discussing today. Because in part, you know, talking about the um, lessons from Steven Spear and the Toyota production system and uh, high velocity edge there, it was actually the same material that we were looking at the late 90s. We were looking at Toyota and Honda and what was happening in lean, how manufacturing had changed with lean manufacturing, but it hadn't made it to software yet. And so we were saying, what are the analogies? What are things we can use? And and people looking far afield, you know, Christopher Alexander and the Timeless Way of Building, mm-hmm. at looking for, you know, quality without a name, um, building quality in, uh, all of these elements and finding counterintuitive insights that we could apply 
in very practical terms. You know, so you, like you didn't really need to understand the neuropsychology of humans to understand why pair programming worked. You could just do pair programming and go, oh yes, we're actually getting more done. We're we're writing and committing more code. We're shipping, actually more importantly, we are shipping more code mm. with fewer defects with two people working on one bit than we were before with people working separately. We were, we were changing our metrics and, and, and changing what we measured. This is like a paradigm shift, right? Where, where it moved from, are we delivering our software as code complete, right? Have we hit like software development complete and we're ready for the integration phase, which is where projects went to die <laughs> because you would enter the six-week plan integration phase and it would be six months or nine months or never, like projects would, right. you know, but because you had this mountain of like, no, actually, you know, that's not the way to be successful. We need to stop looking at software, you know, committed to software that ships to and gets used. Like the usage matters. That changing of the goalposts, that changing the way we saw, yeah, it, was, it led to all kinds of things. Paracrogramming was one. I mean, the other thing that really stands out for me was in that book, if something's hard, you should do it more frequently. This was the argument for continuous integration. Integration is difficult. Therefore, we should do it all the time. Th that, mm. that is probably the most counterintuitive element, you know, certainly next to pair programming, I, I think, in that, in that book. And man, the resistance to that. You were talking, uh, it, we can all talk about sort of, I remember the doing the impossible 50 times a day uh, right. from uh, Timothy Fitz at, at IMView, uh, about deploying to production 50 times a day. Every commit made it out to production, yeah. unless it, you know, assuming that no tests failed and the, and the testing system that went into it. But in, in, in there, it was a question, did you check in multiple times a day? <laughs> I, that was, it was not normal for a developer to check in every day. I think people will forget yeah. that. People would have code on their desktop for for weeks. And the idea that you're going to check in not just once a day, but multiple times a day. <laughs> that was that was again, that was another sort of aha moment. In fact, you're going to be integrating all the time. And I remember making a game of it. Like, well, let's taking this dial to 11 and and, <laughs> and being in a uh, a four-person team with two pairs, and we were like racing. We wanted to make integration <laughs> the other team's job, right? So, <laughs> so we would be, what's the smallest uh, uh, test code cycle we can do and commit? So we could look up and sort of, you know, understatedly say, uh, you know what, you're, you're going to want to pull. And then quick, quick, quick <laughs> get the next one done. It's such a different dynamic. The, the first company where I was doing this, we looked at check-in me metrics, and there was a tenfold difference over a six-month period between the person who checked in the most and the person who checked in the least. Literally 70 <laughs> times versus 700 times. <laughs> Massive difference. Now, that's, that's not productivity. I'm not saying that the person who checked in 700 times was writing 10 times more code. That's definitely not the case. Mm. But they were generating information a lot more frequently the information yeah. flow was utterly different, right? And that's what it comes back to. These insights about pairing and integration are about information flow. They're about opportunities to learn early. The earliest time you could learn is when I'm there talking to the person before I even type. <laughs> the next person, I type it in, he goes, wait a minute. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, you missed a semicolon. It was faster yeah, yeah. feedback than the compiler. So 
uh, uh, you know, the, these insights were really, uh, they, they have these different forms, but we, they come back to what we're talking about. Why were they more effective? Because they generated more information faster. They had tighter feedback loops. I got to tell you, my cheeks hurt from <laughs> smiling <laughs> so much. <laughs> um, I really appreciate this. And by the way, just to reciprocate with the story, I, the InView one, uh, you know, but by the time I had read that article, you know, I was sort of immune to the shock of deployment. But I was still shocked when I read that how they did database schema changes or the fact that like you would, you know, instead of making a schema change, just store it in a different way. You know, in other words, yeah. take the complexity in your code, not in the database. And that was shocking. Like yeah. that, that, that struck me as immoral. Like what, <laughs> what sort of psychopath <laughs> would do that? And yet, you know, given the, the, just the catastrophic impacts of bad schema changes, I mean, that was clearly uh, an adaptation yes. right, to work around that. It was just <laughs> amazing to me. <laughs> Uh, Gene here. Okay, I just want to punctuate that phrase that Jeffrey said. They were generating much more information and they were generating that information much earlier, which meant that they were learning more and learning earlier. Uh, holy cow, that seems like a super important concept, as well as concretizing all the way that information helps us learn. Uh, I also did want to take a moment to describe that famous blog post by Timothy Fitz at InView called Doing the Impossible 50 Times Per Day. I had mentioned that the shock of headlines like 10 deploys a day had started to wear off on me. It seemed like that was destined to become the new normal, and I was having plenty of fun describing it in my own presentations to shock and horrify the people I was presenting to. But I remember in 2013, Jez Humble showing me that article from Timothy Fitz, and, I, and the utter shock uh, when, I, when I read it, and to learn what these savages were doing. It wasn't in the blog post, but something in the comments that Jez had pointed me to. Basically, it said that they avoided doing risky database schema changes the way that most people did them, which often resulted in application servers crashing when they looked for database columns that no longer existed. So instead of renaming table columns, they would make a new column, copy all the data into that new column, change all the code to query that new column, and then safely drop the old column. <laughs> so it really did offend me at first. Uh, the notion of having the same data stored in two places and introducing even more complexity into your code uh, was definitely the opposite of the way we were trained to do things in school. But of course, it does make so much more sense. They actually decreased the risk of database schema changes and took advantage that code is much more malleable, shapeable, and testable than the database. Even now, almost seven years later, I still marvel at how ingenious and counterintuitive and even shocking uh, their practices were. Okay, back to the interview. I have this feeling, you know, what they call it, learning organizations, or there's a body of work that goes back 50, 60 years. Yep. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about you know, Dr. Aguirre's, uh, all the lean researchers, whether it's MIT Beer Game, you know, organizational dynamics, system dynamics. I mean, I feel like this all part of a cohesive body of work, but... My feeling is, and this is maybe the height of arrogance <laughs> to even claim, is that, that there's something missing, <laughs> right? Okay. That, that we enter the age of software and data, right? Yeah. At the age of information, there's a cohesive whole that is missing. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's a very grand claim to make, but I'm, I'm just wondering if I can get your reaction on that. On a scale of one to 10, one is utter disdain for that comment. Clearly, I didn't read a certain book that I must go read, <laughs> and that uh, uh, everything I just said just disqualifies me from anything that you care about. Ten is like, oh no, there is, there is something missing, right? As someone who has 
spread so copiously. Yeah, is there something missing, and you feel like this sort of fills a hole? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I definitely think something's missing. I, it, there's, there's no question. I, and I'm not sure exactly where. But I mean, I think if you look over the course of time, so yes, there's this body of knowledge, but we're expanding our understanding of the constituent bits very rapidly. The, at the time that you started, that, so you kind of go back into the 60s or even early 70s, it was before the kind of in Trubisky stuff, right? Where the, the, the uh, cognitive biases, we didn't have the concept of cognitive biases as part of a vocabulary at all in, until the 70s. And it's not been common in our thought process of organizational design until well, even, is it still, is it still common? <laughs> is, are people really designing around cognitive biases right now? I think mostly not. So in our daily thought process of how we manage and design these systems, we're, we're not using the latest knowledge. It's not all been integrated yet into the theory of learning and software. Because part of it, you mentioned two very different things. Part of it was humans and human systems, but then you brought in information. And when you bring this together, you're talking about what used to be called cybernetics, mm. right? Which is a term that's way out of fashion. It does not, <laughs> but it used to be cybernetics. Exactly. <laughs> but that, that idea of like how um, uh, uh, information technology would interact with human decision-making there's, I think there's a whole um, area there that's still very poorly understood. So I think we're we're getting better on the human element. We're getting better at systems thinking, and and, and but we're still integrating the information plus systems plus humans component. So we're st I, I think there's a lot there for us to to work out still. Um, thank you so much for the time. How can people reach you? And uh, is there any specific help you're looking for these days where you want people to reach out to you? I am on Twitter, JTF, one of those uh, three-letter early-day Twitter <laughs> handles. <laughs> and uh, that's the easiest way for people to reach me. I'm also on LinkedIn and conversationaltransformation.com. And I am really interested from hearing from people, and I'm really interested when people find out that they have trouble making change where they are. I've, for many years, done a session with people where I'd say, are you frustrated? It's probably your fault. <laughs> and and the idea is that there's probably some contribution you're making. Or you have more freedom and degrees of control than you might realize. So I'm interested in hearing from people in part because I want to sort of disprove this and find those places where, you know, help me find the place where change is really impossible and, and uh, where there's there's no chance for improvement. I, I'm, I'm interested in, in those. So people, frustrated learners who are willing to share their stories, uh, I, I find those uh, incredibly helpful. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thanks, Gene. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Up next will be my interview of Scott Havens, formerly Director of Software Engineering at Jet.com and Walmart Labs, and then Head of Supply Chain Technology at Moda Operandi. He gave one of the most amazing DevOps Summit presentations, describing how he helped rebuild the entire inventory management system for Walmart, the world's largest company. He earned this right by the amazing work he did building the incredible systems that powered Jet.com that Walmart had acquired. It powered the inventory management, order management, transportation, available to promise, available to ship, and tons of other critical processes that all must go right for an online retailer. He talked about functional programming principles not in the small but in the large and how it enabled building and running one of the world's largest supply chain systems more safely, 
more quickly and even more cheaply. This inspired one of my favorite story elements in the Unicorn Project. I know you'll enjoy it and see you then. I hope you enjoyed that final episode of season one. While we take a break over the holidays, I want to share with you some of the great opportunities for you to continue your learning journey. First off, you should of course read Agile Conversations, the book that Jeffrey co-authored. And while you're at it, pick up a copy of John Smart's new book, Sooner, Safer, Happier. I love both books. And keep an eye on IT Revolution's Twitter account at ITRevBooks for lots of holiday giveaways. And don't forget to sign up for the IT Revolution newsletter at itrevolution.com for updates about the release of Season 2. See you then.